The unfolding of our lives begins in our minds. Not the mind simply of intellect, but mind as awareness, mind as consciousness. The first verse of the Dhammapada says, mind is the forerunner of all things. And when in meditation practice, most basically what we're doing is looking at and exploring and investigating and discovering the nature of this mind. The mind is intrinsically pure awareness, that which simply knows, sight or sound or smell or thought or an emotion. But this mind, this awareness, gets colored by the arising of different mental factors and various combinations, different mental qualities. Love, fear, anger, joy, happiness, mindfulness, depression, boredom, all of these are qualities and many more, are factors of mind which arise and color the awareness, color consciousness. And very often it feels like our mind may be a battleground, like a Star Wars of mental factors and doing battle with one another. The power of the practice The power of meditation is that it leads us or brings us in the most immediate and direct and face-to-face way with what causes suffering in the mind and what leads to happiness and freedom. Not theoretically, not philosophically. We know because we've sat and walked and noticed hour after hour after hour at a certain point, we really begin to see these states of mind, this way of being, this kind of action, bring suffering. This leads to happiness. It's no longer second-hand. We know it for ourselves. And this is course, as we've mentioned a few times, this is the literal meaning of the word vipassana. It means seeing clearly or seeing accurately. We learn to see both what it is that's happening just in each moment, what actually is arising, and we also begin to understand or grasp or intuit some of the laws which are governing this whole process. The law is governing the unfolding. The Buddha singled out one law as being of primary importance. And it's essential that we begin to understand this very basic law of our life. Because the ignorance of it leads to so much suffering for ourselves and others. And that is the law of karma. Karma basically means action. The law of karma means that every action we do brings about certain results. That actions have power. And that we can't ignore that. We have to understand this law of moral cause and effect. Now, it's very easy to see this at work in the realm of nature, in the realm of the physical world, do certain things and they have certain results. What the Buddha was able to see with such precision and such exactness was that there is a moral law of cause and effect which conditions this whole process of nama rupa, of mind and body unfolding. Okay, so what is karma, actually, specifically? The Buddha talked of karma as being the intention or the volition behind the act. This volition, this intention, is like the seed. And a seed has tremendous potential, which we often overlook. We might think that a simple action or a little 
bit of a seed, it's not much. You take one little acorn, and really, it's quite miraculous, it's quite amazing to think that contained in that acorn is the potential of a great oak tree. It's something. You know, or just the egg and the sperm coming together. It's some very little thing that seems so insignificant in and of itself, and yet within it is tremendous potential power. This is exactly true of each of our volitional actions. When we wake up to this, when we see this, when we really get a sense of this, we begin to see why the Buddha talked of the law of karma as being so crucially important. Okay, so what kind of results come from these seeds? Each volitional action is a seed. It has the power to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Again, with tremendous clarity. The Buddha described how the kind of fruit of an action depends on the associated motivation. What's motivating that particular act? Is it greed? Is it hatred? Is it delusion? These motives result in suffering. Is it generosity? Is it love? Is it wisdom? These motivations are the seed of happiness. Now, sometimes this human realm of ours is described as a great treasure island. And people come to this island And some of them go away with great treasure, and some go away empty-handed. And that's the great sadness, really, that people can be on this treasure island and go away empty-handed. When we understand the law of karma, when we understand the causes of happiness and the causes of suffering, then it's very simple. Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this. He said, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. (laughs) And it really is like that. When we understand the causes of happiness, and then we do those actions, happiness follows. In case we still didn't get it, the Buddha, he laid it out even more simply. And this, I really love this about the teachings because <laughs> he just goes over and over the things that really should be so obvious, but he's not taking any chances. <laughs> you know, he's, just, he's laying it out so simply. We don't even have to figure out, okay, is this associated with greed? Is this associated with hatred? That may be a little too subtle for us. <laughs> no, it, it could be. So he just listed 10 wholesome and unwholesome actions. He just he spelled it right out. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit sexual misconduct. That kind of action in our sexuality, in our intimate relationships, that cause suffering. Four unskillful actions of speech. Not lying. Not harsh speech. Not backbiting or gossip. And not useless or frivolous talk. Of course, now there's not that much opportunity to... (laughs) But we'll talk more about this at the end of the course, because all of these actions of speech, they're very difficult to follow, even though they're so clear. And then there were three unwholesome actions of mind, of covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. And one of the aspects of wrong view is the view that actions don't have consequences which he really saw as being very dangerous. You know, when people have that wrong view, because then they don't pay attention. Okay, the wholesome actions are just the opposite of those ten. So it's really very simple. And they're 
really quite obvious as, as we reflect on these, we can see for ourselves, yes, these are the actions which lead to suffering for others or for ourselves. This is that first verse in the Dhammapada. It says, mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So somehow we have to internalize, we have to understand and really start living this understanding that each one of our actions of our body, of speech, and of our mind, they are leading in a certain direction. They have consequences. This law of karma is called the light of the world because it illuminates, it illuminates the world, it illuminates our lives, it illuminates where we're going. So the question, one question is, how can we understand this law of karma in a way that is not abstract and not philosophical and not simply some theory? How can we relate to it in our own lives, in our own experience? How is it working? How are we experiencing it? We can do this in different ways. One kind of karma is called present karma. And we can see this very obviously in how we feel when the mind is associated with different states. What is it like when we're lying? What is it like when we're truthful? Are we paying enough attention to see, to see for ourselves? What is it like when we're generous? What does it feel like? What does it feel like when we're miserly, when we're holding on? This is not something to believe. It's something to really see for ourselves and know very intimately. And in this understanding of present karma, it's not simply how we feel in ourselves, but also noticing in these different states how people respond to us when we're truthful and when we're not. When we're generous and when we're not. So that's a very immediate feedback of karmic consequence. We can also understand present karma in terms of the effect of our present actions or how we undertake something in terms of what we accomplish. And we can see that part of the success or not of any endeavor depends on our own personal involvement, engagement, effort, energy. If we put a lot of energy and care and concern into something, that's a karmic cause of it coming to fruition. If we don't, if we're negligent, if we're uncaring, if we're disinterested in any undertaking, so then consequences follow from that. So much of the teaching, not all of it, but so much of it is so obvious when we stop to consider, when we stop to look. There's another way we experience karma, not only as present, present action. And this is something, the second way is something I think you've probably touched on quite deeply in your time here. And that is the understanding that the mind retains impressions of all our past actions. That they just don't go into the void someplace. That somehow the impressions of each of our actions 
somehow, in some mysterious way, is held in the mind or contained in the mind. And so our past actions can become a source of either great remorse or great joy. Sometimes when we think of our past wholesome actions, our past good deeds, it really brings a lot of delight in our mind. We're glad that we've done it, and when we think of it, we feel delight. Sometimes, though, we're remembering our past not-so-great actions, (laughs) past unwholesome actions. Here we have to be quite careful, because the mind can take two directions here. As we become aware, as these things start coming up, one direction is guilt, and another direction is remorse. And this has been talked about during the retreat. Very important distinction. Because guilt is just another unwholesome mind state. It's a trick of the ego, saying how bad I am. There's a lot of I in guilt. There's a lot of self in guilt. In remorse, there's wise discrimination, there's forgiveness. We see, yes, that was an unskillful action. And we know it. We're not denying it. We're open to it. We feel it but with no self-condemnation, with no self-judgment. It's with wisdom. And out of the wisdom comes forgiveness. When we are on this track, we could call it of wise remorse, understanding in this way, then the reliving of our past actions, which come up in practice, really is a purifying process. Because we are allowing ourselves to be with that action, so to speak, again in our memory, but this time with awareness instead of with the original delusion. And so we're really purifying this from our mind stream. I had this happen very intensely in my practice. This is my chicken story. (laughs) It was really one of the most intense things. When I was in the Peace Corps in training, uh, we did did two weeks of the training in Hawaii. This was going to Thailand. And for some reason, they thought we needed to know how to kill chickens. And so that was part of the Peace Corps training. And I thought, well, I ought to be able to do this. You know, it's a real kind of a macho mindset. You know, real man can kill a chicken. <laughs> so this friend held this poor chicken, and it was horrible. I mean, it was really horrible. But at the time, my mind was so deluded that some, even going through and feeling horrible about it. Some part of me, you know, was really proud of myself for having done this. And there was this picture of me with this big smile on my face holding this scrawny chicken. Quite a few years later, I was in India doing intensive practice. All of this started to resurface. And as it resurfaced in my practice, I really, I was overwhelmed. First with guilt, and then I had to work through the guilt, and then just remorse about it all. To see, and really wonderment about how my mind could have been so deluded to think somehow that was a good thing to do. You know, because it was really reliving it in tremendous vividness and tremendous intensity. And it was quite a few days of this coming back and back and back and back. And I was just had to be with it. And at a certain point, the whole thing dissolved, it went away. And it really felt like a purifying process, that I needed to go through that. Just one little interesting side note on this. Sometimes they served us eggs, where I was staying in this Burmese Vihara. And the night when this was the most intense, They served an egg. It was like a a hard-boiled egg. I opened it, and there was a little embryo. And that's the only time in my life that has ever happened. 
so you just start to wonder, you know. <laughs> what is running this show? Who is? There are mysterious forces at work. But this is part of this, the experience. It's a karmic result, you know, all of these aspects. And in this sense, when we can be with these past impressions as they come up, both, you know, the, the beautiful ones and the joyful ones and the ones that have been unwholesome or suffering, if we can be with them with awareness, with openness, with wisdom, it really is a purifying we're allowing it to come up, be with it, and let it go. So it's a very important part of the process and an important part of understanding karma. Yanaponokatera, this, you know, this old, wonderful, the German monk who's lived in Sri Lanka for years, wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. He, called, he calls meditation and mindfulness general house cleaning of the mind. And because we sit, and it all starts to empty out. We can also experience the law of karma very directly in terms of how our meditation practice unfolds for us. The Buddha talked of four kinds of yogis. There are yogis who progress slowly with a lot of pain. There are yogis who progress quickly with a lot of pain. There are yogis who progress slowly without much pain and difficulty, and yogis who progress quickly without much pain. There don't seem to be too many of this last kind. (laughs) But all of this is karmically conditioned. It's, it's, It's not necessarily about the kind of effort we're putting in now, although that could be a component, but it really is just karmic fruits. And I find this encouraging, actually, because in all of those times where it feels like, you know, I'm just slogging through something, you know, it feels like not much is happening, and maybe it's very uncomfortable. And to realize not, understanding it as a karmic result allows us not to personalize it so much. Yeah, this is because of some past action. And it just puts everything in a much much more spacious, much more open perspective. Okay, so this is another way we experience karma. Past impressions coming up in the mind, or how our practice is unfolding at a certain time we can experience karma in yet another way, very directly. And that is the understanding that through the repetition of actions, our mind develops certain habits, certain personalities. What is personality except the repetition of certain kinds of behavior? Behavior of body, of speech, of mind. There's one critically important understanding here, and that is that every time we perform an action, it becomes easier to do that same action again. There's a New Age biologist, Rupert Sheldrake, quite a few years ago I read of this one theory of his, which, which was exactly this. He called it morphic resonance. He said, when something happens in nature, as soon as something happens, it becomes easier for that same phenomenon to happen again. And he elaborates a whole theory in biology about this. But I thought, that's exactly how our habit patterns of action are developed. Not only do we develop different personalities because of the habits of our actions, the Buddha also spoke spoke about the karmic evolution of different realms of existence. 
We talked about the lower realms of suffering and the human realm and the deva and brahma realms of great bliss and happiness. It is possible to interpret this also as kind of mind states that we experience in our own lives, but I would not discount the possibility that these realms also exist very much as this human realm does. A lot of wise people have suggested that, not have suggested, have said directly, this is really so. Now, once when Deepama was here, and she was, as we've mentioned, you know, this extraordinary woman and had great attainment both in Vipassana, in jhana, in power, in psychic powers. Uh, there were a lot of stories of things she did and could do. Somebody she was visiting in the States, and somebody, we were out in California, somebody just asked her very directly, you know, have you seen these other realms? Not what you believe and not what you've been taught and you know, not what's in the books. Have you actually seen you know, the deva realms and the lower realms? And without a moment's hesitation, she said, yes. You know? And I say this not that you should necessarily believe it, but also that you should not necessarily disbelieve it. There's, there's lots of things that may be beyond our present level of understanding, yet are still true. The Buddha was asked why there are differences among people. Some people live long, and some people die young. Some are rich, some are poor. Some are healthy, some are not so healthy. All the differences that we see in the world. And he laid out in this sutta just a very clear description of the kinds of actions which lead to different kinds of results. Now, a lot of care is needed here. Because this teaching is often and can easily be misinterpreted as a kind of blaming the victim. You know, somebody who is either victimized in a situation of suffering or is simply in a, in a situation of suffering. And people may hear this and think, well, this is just another blame the victim. And it's not that at all. So it's important to understand this. The law of karma is not in the least about blame. The law of karma is saying there are conditions, there are causes behind things happening. Things are not happening by accident. We can't always see it in the context of a single lifetime. And often the law of karma doesn't make sense if we only look at a single lifetime. You see a young child who's in some situation of suffering, and quite obviously in this life has not done anything, you know, which would warrant that. And so really to comprehend the import of this, we need to have a very vast vision. It's precisely, this, this law of karma is precisely not about blaming, because blaming closes us off to the feeling of love and compassion for the suffering that's there, whatever it may be. It's not about blame. It's about understanding that things happen due to causes, due to conditions. This is a very important understanding because then in this life, right now, starting in this moment, we can begin to take greater responsibility for our actions. We've all done so many things in the past, like killing chickens <laughs> and other sundry 
actions. What's done is done. From now, from the time of actually being awake, of being mindful, of understanding that our actions bring results, this understanding wakes us up to the import, to the power that each of our actions has, and can inspire us to actually pay attention. Okay, what is it that I'm doing? Where is this action leading? Is it leading to a place that I want to go to? We need to reflect. This is an aspect of clear comprehension. So that we're really living wakefully. We're living with awareness. We're living with interest, with concern, with care. When we begin or continue to explore the meaning or the workings of the law of karma in our lives, it really affects very much how we relate to experience. First, it allows for an acceptance of what's actually happening. Rather than resentment, if it's bad, or pride if it's good. We see, yes, this, in some way, even if we can't see it exactly, in some way we understand, yes, this is happening lawfully. So there's a quality in the mind of acceptance, not resentment, not pride. Again, acceptance does not mean resignation, which it's often interpreted as. It doesn't mean it. Oh, that's my karma, or that's their karma, and we just resign ourselves to it. Rather, acceptance means we understand, we have balance behind it, and we know how, or we learn how to respond to the situation rather than react. Very big difference. Because in one, there's a very strong ego involvement, and in the other, there's not. There's wisdom. We take more responsibility for our actions. What qualities are we developing? What qualities are we strengthening in our actions? It is so easy to simply act out in our lives all the conditioned habits This is basically what's happening in the world. People are acting out their own particular conditioning without much discrimination, without much care for where the actions are leading. I saw this on the back of a a book. This was like a, a little blurb for the book says, a novel of love, lust, passion, and greed has something for everyone. A a delight. (laughs) That sort of sums up samsara. (laughs) You know, our actions are, each of our actions, even each of the little ones, they're like drops of water filling a bucket. And drop by drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. Each of our actions is like this drop in the mind. And if we're not paying attention, if we're not aware, if we're not exercising clear comprehension, wise discrimination, wise choice, the mind gets filled in one direction or another. Reflecting on the law of karma also can very much arouse a strong sense of spiritual urgency. 
And the classic example of this, or one classic example, of course, is the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa, who had, in his youth, he had developed certain powers in black magic, and he had, due to having endured a lot of injustice, this, this is all written in, in the biography, which is very interesting, he caused all kinds of destruction to come, to come about on the people who had tormented him. But then he was filled with tremendous remorse, and he reflected on the law of karma, and he thought, boy, these actions are not going to have good results for me. I better get enlightened. <laughs> and so he went off, and he found his teacher, and he practiced incredibly, earnestly, and you know, for years and years and years in a cave, and, and he attained realization, awakening. And it was really the law of karma, which was, it was, that was in his mind, which was spurring him on to great, to great diligence. At the end of his life, he was about to give a transmission to his chief disciple. And he said, you know, he had many, he had many students, but this one person, he said, you come up with me to the mountain, I'm going to give you the secret teachings, the, just the, the essence. So they trudge for days and days and days, and they get to this remote mountaintop, and this disciple is all eager you know, to get the elixir of the teachings. And all Milarepa does is bend over and shows him the leather-like calluses on his butt <laughs> from all those years of sitting. And that was the transmission. <laughs> In some way, that's really what it's about. You know, We just need to do it. And there are innumerable ups and downs. And as you know, you know, having been through so many of them, times when you feel like it's going really wonderfully and things are happening and times when it's really flat and times when it's really suffering. Sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. Let the, let the calluses form. Because out of it, out of this determination to be awake, to be aware, to be mindful, the Dharma unfolds. The mind is illuminated. But it takes tremendous perseverance. It takes a steadfastness of purpose. Okay, it's not enough just to reflect on all this. It's not enough to have this as theory. We need some strength in the mind, some power in the mind, which allows us to actually act on our understanding. And we have that power, we have that strength. And it's the strength of mind of renunciation. Renunciation does not have good press in this country. You know, it's not really a cultural value. And people look at you like you're a little weird, even if you start speaking about renunciation. I'd like to suggest a few ways it can be practiced that doesn't mean necessarily we go off to a cave in the Himalayas. In our life, right here, it can be practiced. Very simply, fundamental act of renunciation is learning to let go of what is unskillful, of learning the ability or practicing the ability to say no in the mind. Something comes up that we see is going to lead to suffering for ourselves or for other people. We learn how to say no. I'm not going to do that. We let go of it. No is a very complex word. It's very short, but very complex. This no of letting go is not the no of aversion. It is not the no of suppression or of denial or of pretense. It's really the no of wisdom, 
we see that something is not wholesome, is not good, is leading to unhappiness. Do we have the power? Do we have the strength to renounce that in that moment? To say, no, I don't need to do this. It's very much as we would be with a young child who we see is going to do something that's going to cause it harm. Do we say, to them, oh yeah, go on, do it. We say, no, don't do that. Out of love, out of compassion, out of care. As a general principle in the practice, I found for myself, it's generally a good idea to treat the mind like it's two years old. (laughs) And then we'll be about on the right level. (laughs) No, don't do that. It really is just just about like that. Start with small things. We don't have to start with grandiose renunciations, with very small things. Ajahn Sumedho from England, he expressed this very well, this whole practice. He said that in Dharma practice, it's not a question of following the heart. It's a question of training the heart. And I felt that just got right to the essence of it. Because there's so much talk of, you know, follow the heart. Sometimes wonderful things come out of the heart, and sometimes not such wonderful things come out. We need to train it. We need to see it. We need to be aware. Where are we going? Where is it leading? one practice of renunciation is learning how to let go of what is unskillful in a gentle, loving way, getting that ability to say no to the mind. Another practice of renunciation, which is so applicable on retreat, it's about conservation of energy. Now, as we practice, the energy starts to build. It builds in the body, it builds in the mind, it builds in our emotions. Things get very intense. Often people experience that in dreams. Dreams get so vivid and so startling sometimes. And we can feel it in our meditative experience. The tendency is, very often, when the energy starts building and it's pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, it can start getting uncomfortable. We don't like it, and so we look for ways to release it. It's what I call energy leaks. Letting a little air out of the balloon. Watch to see both this buildup of energy that happens and also the tendency or the habit to begin to leak it out. One favorite way of leaking energy is just sitting and daydreaming. You know, where we just allow the mind to get lost in some pleasant fantasy. Because it's nice, it's easy, it's pleasant. You know, and the sittings go quickly. And <laughs> But really what's happening is just the energy getting dispersed. Writing too much. Reading letters that are not, not necessary. I found this in Burma. You know, I was always so so anxious and happy when a letter came. And then I would read it, and it's like my mind would just be thinking about it for days until I realized, I don't need to do this. This is just a leak of energy from the practice. Let me, let me put it aside. I'll read it at the end. Talking. Reading the same old signs on the bulletin board. <laughs> Favorite yogi pastime. <laughs> How many times have you read How to Plant the Bulbs? <laughs> but I know, and I know from my own being a yogi, you know, you're walking past there, and there's just this irresistible urge. <laughs> there are so many ways we do this. You know, the 15th cup of tea in the day. Be watchful. Know that part of the process is a buildup of energy. 
that sometimes it gets uncomfortable, see if it's possible to hold it, to conserve it, to let it build. Sometimes we do need to do something to balance things out a little bit. But no, see if you can really see when it's something that's balancing us and when it's simply an energy leak. And if you are aware, I think you will notice the difference. The first type of renunciation is letting go of what's unskillful. The second has to do with this conserving of energy, not leaking it. There's a third type of renunciation, which really leads us to a very big change of understanding. And that is the renunciation, it's really the renunciation of self. It's learning not to identify with each arising appearance. See if you can notice, in the course of a sitting or walking through the day, how when we become identified with anything whatsoever, a thought, a feeling, a reaction, a sensation, a sound, whatever, every time we become identified with something, it's as if we become imprisoned in that appearance, in that experience. It's like all of a sudden there's that contraction into it. Instead of resting in an open, limitless, boundless awareness where everything is arising and passing. It's the same phenomena. It's not a pulling back from the experience of phenomena. Everything is still there, coming and going, but how are we relating to it? This most fundamental renunciation is the renunciation of the sense of self, of this process of identification with phenomena, which really is at the root of all the suffering. develop a mind which clings to naught. That's the whole teaching. Now when we practice this renunciation of identification with things, it really allows us to see more clearly the impermanent, non-personal nature of all phenomena. There's a a little stanza from the Diamond Sutra, which someone may have read to you before, but it's so apt here. See all of this world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom in a dream. Just reflect for a moment on what these images actually are. See all of this world as a star at dawn. What happens? It's there and then disappears. As a bubble in a stream, as a flash of lightning. What the teachings see all of this world as that. Now it's easy to hear that stanza and think, oh yeah, that's very beautifully expressed and not give it a... (laughs) But it's really... It's telling us something very profound. See all of this world, which is this and this, our bodies, our minds, the external world, see it all as being this momentary, transitory phenomenon. It's there for the moment and it's gone. The gift of a retreat like this is that it enables us to begin to see that this is actually true. 
This is how things are. It's only because of our not seeing, of our ignorance, of our ignoring, that we hold on, that we become attached, that we solidify, that we reify things. And then we live in this world of concretization. It's no wonder that it's a problem. We've lost, we've lost touch with that essential emptiness, spaciousness, openness, ease. And our practice is to come back to that. And we're no longer driven to act either by the force of desire or out of this strong sense of self. And there's much more room, there's much more spaciousness to move and act in the world with greater generosity because we're not holding on so tight. We can move with greater responsiveness, with greater love, with greater compassion because we're not so self-centered. Dalai Lama, as he often does, just, just expressed this aspect of the teaching so clearly and so simply. One point he said, my true religion is kindness. That's all, my true religion is kindness. That kindness comes out of awareness. It comes out of emptiness. So when we look carefully, when we really observe how things are, we begin to understand for ourselves the law of karma. We begin to see that actions have consequences, that certain mind states bring about certain results. But from understanding this, we then empower the sense of renunciation, of letting go of what's unskillful, of conserving our energy of not identifying with appearances. And these kinds of renunciation, in turn, allow us to live in the world with greater ease and with greater care. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.